G'day, this is an abridged version of the episode that you can hear in full by signing up at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe. Enjoy the freebie. G'day, humans. Welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. One of my favorite things to do is to have a little chinwag with you about the things that you're interested in hearing my take on. Uh, and I can only assume that the people who actually respond to call-outs for Ask Me Anything episodes are somewhat representative of the great bulk, the great seething math mass of human beings yearning to breathe free, whom I welcome to these blessed shores of uncomfortable conversations. Because the questions are generally really good, and I'm interested in wrestling with them. Sometimes I don't know what my what I even think about them until someone asks. Uh, so thank you for all of your Ask Me Anything questions, and I hope you, uh, you love them. Today, uh, we have a doozy to start with. What is something that you know and believe? This is from uh, Algorithms R Us on Twitter. What is something that you know and believe, a contrarian take to what everyone else believes right now, that you know 10 years from now everyone will share and agree with you and that it will actually just be conventional, boring wisdom by then. That's good, isn't it? I mean, I'm tempted to just say what I think is the most obvious thing, but I don't know if this is if this satisfies the criterion of being contrarian to what everyone else believes right now. But the idea that we would all be fairly unruffled by going to a supermarket and selecting the flesh of other mammals purely on the basis of how cheap we can get a pound of their flesh without really having any, any consideration for the experience that, that animal went through, not just as it was being killed, but through the entirety of its life, being fattened up as fast as possible, fed hormones to get fatter quicker, to build more muscle more quickly. In the case of chickens, to put on so much muscle mass that their bones buckle and break and a significant proportion of them are waddling around on semi-broken legs in confined in spaces that derange them and make them peck their beaks off and peck each other's eyes out. Like, total torture, like concentration camp, Holocaust-style conditions for billions upon billions, hundreds of billions of animals that we know are roughly as capable of feeling pain and affection for their loved ones and their children and having aspirations in their lives as, say, a pet that you might have, a cat or something. Like the idea that, that we've erected this institution of concentrated animal feeding operations where really the only priority is just getting the chicken breast as cheap as possible and having it not not harm you when you eat it. So you can chlorinate it, they can chlorinate it and put, you know, and, and put antiseptics on it and put it in antiseptic baths before they give it to you. And then you just go to a supermarket, shiny lights, plastic cling wrap over it, uh, irradiated white styrofoam and you take it home and then we just eat it and we just feed it to our children. And that's not, that isn't really problematic. Like, I guess we're, we've reached a tipping point where I think that most people who think about it understand the calamity of the moral wrong that's being done. But I guess it's not salient enough for us to actually change our behavior. I mean, I have changed my behavior, but only in the most piddling and piffling and cowardly way in the sense that I don't buy, uh, I don't buy <laughs> concentrated animal feeding operation meat. I don't buy cheap meat. I only, I only get meat if the meat is endorsed by 
animal rights groups and is three times the price of the normal meat and comes from a special fancy farm. But I mean, I still, I, I don't really know how nice the lives were of the animals. I don't have a, I don't have a huge problem with killing animals. I mean, like, here's my thinking. Every time I talk to very articulate vegans who sound persuasive about why I shouldn't be consuming animal products at all, I'm momentarily persuaded. And then I think about the value that I place on the richness of the world's cultures and the different ways that human beings have used animal products and continue to use animal products to enrich their lives and the lives of their communities and their families. And I think of the austerity of a world in which there was no use of animals. And I think about the circle of life and the the natural process of animals eating animals and animals dying and those bodies then feeding other plants that then go to feed other animals that in turn also die. And it just strikes me as something a little bit cold and scientific about removing Homo sapiens altogether from the circle of life and saying, like, we're only going to eat tofu and lab-grown meat. Like, so I, I don't know. So I'm not sold, I'm not sold on the proposition that e- eating anything that caused an animal to die is wrong. But I think it's obvious, it's obvious in the way that slavery ought to have been an obvious wrong 200 years ago, and yet people persisted in going along with it, even in the knowledge that it was macabre. It's obvious that treating other living, breathing, feeling mammals and creatures and birds that are capable of having experiences, subjective experiences, of treating them as if they're not capable of having experiences, as if their experiences count for literally nothing other than trying to get their flesh as cheap as possible. That's so obviously wrong that I'm sure that it may not be 10 years from now, but I'm certain that in 30 years from now or in 50 years from now, people will look back on the cavalier attitude that we had towards the well-being of factory farmed animals with absolute horror. I mean, it, if anything is going to is going to be akin to the way that we look back on the behavior of people in the past with just head-shaking bafflement, it's going to be that, isn't it? I mean, in the 2100s, surely people are going to look back on on our enormous edifice of hundreds of billions of sentient creatures all crammed in with no consideration for what their lives are like, simply so that we can have slightly cheaper, slightly tastier food. That's just going to be, people will be saying like, how did they, how did they not think about that? Like, how did they participate in that? So at least I don't, I try not to participate in that. I said I was about to say I don't participate in that. But of course, when I eat out, I will occasionally be presented with uh, animal flesh, and I don't know its provenance. And the fact that I don't know its provenance, of course, means that I do, in fact, know its provenance. Because if, unless it's being proactively sold as being free range, you can bet your bottom dollar it's not. So I'm still complicit, but that would be one thing that I know and believe that I think will become conventional, boring wisdom. I don't think the whole world is going to become vegan. But I do think that everyone in polite society who now thinks that, for example, racism is a bad thing will in subsequent decades think that paying no heed to the concerns of 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 animals of sentient creatures that are, that don't belong to our species uh is is a moral wrong um next question do journalists who want to foster a more open discussion have more impact in substack land 
or within traditional media roles such as the ABC? Asks Zach Gross on Twitter. Another great question, one that I absolutely definitively can say I do not have a definitive answer for and I don't know the answer to. Do journalists who want to foster a more open discussion have more impact in Substack land or within traditional media roles such as the ABC? My hunch still is that you have more impact inside the tent pissing out than standing outside the tent pissing in. That being in the tent carries cachet and has value. There is just simply nothing like the reach of a national public broadcaster like the ABC in Australia or the BBC in the UK. There's, for all of their faults, for all of their groupthink, for all of their frustrating persnicketiness in requiring so many facts to be checked and so many I's to be dotted and T's to be crossed that sometimes they miss the big picture or they are unwilling to talk about things that might be speculative. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm wrestling at the moment with how to deal with the lab leak theory of COVID, which I have gradually become more and more convinced of just listening to really, really, really smart, credible people talking about this, people who I trust and knowing the disincentives within the conventional media to broaching sort of big, controversial, messy, ugly, difficult to back up things unless you've got proof. You know, journalism requires proof. That's just the way it goes. You can't just go around reporting that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was probably responsible for uh, COVID-19 without sounding like a crackpot unless you can bring your receipts and back it up. And bringing the receipts and backing it up is really, really tricky in an environment where the Chinese don't let you know anything and the organs of power and the organs of the state and the public health bureaucracies in the West are are loathe to create enemies needlessly by alienating the Chinese and the World Health Organization needs China on board. And in the absence of hard evidence, what have you got? You've got a bunch of really smart people with a hunch. How do you deal with a bunch of really smart people with a hunch? The, the Western media, you know, the mainstream organs of journalism have not figured out what to do with that. So then you go to Substack land and podcast land and you get some people who exude charm and charisma and authenticity and who are willing to have those conversations with people who have a hunch. But then there's no way of filtering the people who are really informed people with a hunch who are sane and measured and doing the Bayesian work of balancing probabilities well enough to to put together a coherent worldview that is not, you know, tumbling off down the rabbit hole to conspiracy land. It's very difficult to separate them from bad actors who've always had a chip on their shoulder about the establishment, who've always had a chip on their shoulder about not being listened to, and finally find an opportunity for limelight and fame by being the brave dissenters who stand up to institutional corruption by telling you the real truth, the secret truth that the elites don't want you to know. Like, it's a fine line between those things sometimes. And there are some issues on which you go back and forth. Six, eight months ago, I would have said that people who believed that the that COVID came from a lab were in the latter camp. Now I believe they're in the former camp. But that's just because I've just heard enough of them speak enough sense. Uh, you know, so 
I think we have to find a way for mainstream institutions to incorporate a little bit of the tap dancing pizzazz that think that people like me and the other people in this alternative media sphere have. We need to, and that's what, I mean, that is the job of my career, right? The job of my career is to make mainstream media make more sense and be a little bit more courageous and a little bit more less group thinky and a little bit more willing to touch things that it doesn't like touching and to get its hands dirty and to talk with people from a wider range of points of view and to not be afraid of triggering tripwires that it thinks might cause cancel culture conundrums. Like just basically have the mainstream media man up a bit and grow a pair and start to talk about shit the way that human beings around the dinner table or at the barbie actually talk about them instead of in this very pontificating proper manner. Uh, And then on the other hand, I also want to create a minor media empire here on Uncomfortable Conversations where we can really go one step further, consider things that would not be legitimate to consider in the strictures of mainstream journalism at the public broadcaster and have conversations in completely bullshit ways that are definitely going to piss people off uh, in a way that you can't when you're holding the mantle of, uh, you know, the most prized broadcasting institution in the nation. Um, So I think you need both of the things, probably. It's much riskier dabbling in substack land and dabbling in i mean for the for the for society for culture not for me as a producer but for the for the consumer because it's harder to figure out what's true um for all of the faults of the mainstream media the reality is that the newsrooms at the new york times and the wall street journal and the washington post and bbc and and the abc and 60 Minutes and so on, these are places with an enormous amount of institutional know-how about how to figure out what is factually true and factually untrue. You'll need your three sources. You know, the editors will constantly be coming back to journalists and saying, you haven't got it, you don't have the story yet, you have to go here. Are there big blind spots about the stories they choose to cover? Yes. Is there a, a political sort of group think about judging some people at higher standards than others and, you know, uh, making giving a pass to a Joe Biden that they might not have given to a Donald Trump. Yes, humans are human beings. But that's why you erect institutions like newsrooms and journalistic protocols and editorial processes and self-correcting mechanisms and internal ombudspeople and so on to to try to fight against that. Substack land has no such restrictions. Substack land is a free-for-all. So you've got to be careful about who you're listening to in those environments. And I still think that traditional media roles like the ABC are the best place for a journalist to try to foster more open discussions. I don't get I don't get much pushback. I really don't. I talk about the things that I want to on the ABC. I have to talk about them very very carefully and I, and in some instances I know that I'm then going to have to devote a half day to responding to frivolous complaints that come from activists who want to shut down the conversation. But if I'm willing to pay that price, I've never had a uh, you know, a senior person at the ABC come up and to me and directly say, don't cover this. There might be squeamishness. There might be pushback from producers who think, oh, there goes Josh banging on about his hobby horses again. Why do we have to talk about Roald Dahl being, <laughs> being you know, updated and having the word ugly taken out of all of Roald Dahl's books? You know, why is he banging on about cancel culture? Um, that's fine. They're allowed to do their shows and I'm allowed to do my show. And as long as I have the privilege of doing a show on the ABC, it'll be I'll be basically talking about whatever I want to. And as long as that's the case, I think traditional media trumps uh, the alternative media. That doesn't uh, doesn't mean that I'll still think the same way in 12 months' time. Uh, 
Question number three, what daily mundane task are you looking forward to automating in the future? From Bert on Twitter. That's a goodie. Uh, also, as an aside, I should mention, I, I don't know if you saw my uh, newsletter this week, but we got news from Substack that the uh, the number of you who are converting to paid memberships is like off the charts. So thank you enormously. Like most, almost most people are paying and we're still in an environment in which you don't even need to pay to get all of the good stuff. You do need to subscribe to, to the Substack to get everything, but you don't need to pay yet. So I'm actually frankly baffled why so many people are willing to do so, but thanks. Literally the our contact at Substack said that of the 75 shows that he handles, only one has a higher conversion rate than this show, than you people. And that is a Christian show uh, whose audience, he, he pointed out, are very familiar with voluntarily donating money to things that they like because they're Christians and they do it all the time with their church. So you people are basically in the church of Zeps, and I love you for it. Um, the other thing that it does point to, though, if we have an enormously high conversion rate of people, of Substack subscribers who are paying, is that by implication, the flip side of that is a lot of you are not bothering to sign up for the free Substack, right? If a if a if an overwhelming proportion of the people who have subscribed are paying, you would expect there to be a larger in-between group of you who are like, you know what? I don't want to pay, but I still want to get some more stuff. So I just want to clarify for you some of the things that you get on the free tier. You still get, are you aware of this? If you if you haven't actually entered your email address, and all you have to do is just Google Uncomfortable Conversation Substack and literally just subscribe. You enter your email address and you go, okay, and then you click free and that's it. That's all you do. This is not a long, drawn-out process. You don't have to go into your podcast app and how do I get to the premium feed or anything like that. That's all you have to do, and you will get the you create your own premium feed, and that happens at uncomfortableconversation.substack.com slash listen after you've subscribed at slash subscribe. But just, let me just explain to you. As of listening to this, if you're listening to this within like a week of it coming out, you're still entitled on the free tier to get all of the bonus episodes and all of the premium content and all of the additional content that I do on all of these episodes. And I mean, I don't want to tell you how to rip me off. But you could just go back to all of the episodes that we've released since the Substack launched in like, when was that? November. And you can go through in your in your new podcast, premium podcast app, and just download all of the premium <laughs> podcasts from the past few months. And then you will be able to hear all of the, I mean, quite apart from anything else, forget about the bonus episodes that you get. You get an additional sort of 10% of the entire episode of me interviewing some of the most interesting people who you want to hear from in the at the end of the episode that you haven't previously been able to hear if you're not a subscriber. So like with the last episode, Tim Urban, who I absolutely love, and I, if you haven't heard that, please listen to Tim Urban and please listen to the first time Tim Urban was on the show, which was arguably even more fascinating. He's a genius. But like at the end of the last episode of Tim Urban, I ask him these first date questions, right? And it's not directly related to the things that we've been talking about but it is things like if you could have the answer to any one question what question would you want the answer to like when a mind like tim urban's has to wrestle with that question if he could have the answer to any one question what question would he want the answer to and when you have the opportunity to hear tim urban's answer to that 
And the only cost to you of doing that is Googling Uncomfortable Conversations Substack and entering your email address and subscribing to the free tier. And then, yes, press clicking on set up my podcast feed. And then it gives you a, it gives you a list of all of the podcast apps and you just click on your podcast app and it'll open up the, your personalized free feed in the podcast app. Uncomfortableconversations.subject.com slash listen. When you have the ability to hear him answering that question or when you have him, the, to, when you have the ability to hear Tim Urban uh, answer the, the question, what is happening now that in 20 years people will look back on and laugh about? Or when you get the opportunity to hear him answer the question, what is the worst movie that he's ever seen? Or what appliance in his house aggravates him the most? Or what's the best meal that he's ever had? Or what ability has he always wanted to learn? And you hear his supercharged brain speculate about all this stuff. The fact that, I mean, God bless so many of you for paying for the whole thing in which you get, you know, you're going to get web chats with me and live cocktail chatters and the Zooms and you get all of the premium content. I mean, that's great. But the fact that more of you haven't subscribed to the free version while tons of you are subscribed to the paid version, there's obviously some mismatch in communication here. There's something that you think is harder about subscribing to the free Substack than it is, or I just have really rich <laughs> followers or really devoted followers in the religion of Zeps. But anyway, this is just my pitch. Before before the paywall goes up on the free subscriptions, get in on the free subscription. If you just if you haven't subscribed, get in on the free subscription now. Go back and download it to your device before you lose the right to do so. All of the premium stuff, you can listen to it at your own leisure. It's not, you're not going to be kicked out of it if it's already downloaded onto your own device. But like I say, changes are a coming, my friend. And if you've never bothered to sign up to the Substack yet, uh, then do so. Uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe. But the main point of that was just to say thank you so much for having this ridiculously high conversion rate, insanely, absurdly, unprecedentedly high conversion rate of people who are subscribing and uh, and paying. So if you're one who's who's subscribing and not paying, uh, then you're missing the boat and uh, you're not on the same page as your colleagues. And if you haven't subscribed at all, uh, even more so. What daily mundane task are you looking forward to automating in the future, asks Bert. This reminds me of Oliver Berkman who, if you haven't listened to that episode, listen to that one, 4,000, what is it, what is it, 4,000 weeks? Is that the number of weeks we've got alive? I think that's the name of his, oh, now I have to Google myself to just, to, just to fact check. I think it's 4,000 weeks is the, yes, that's right, the number of weeks that in, a, in a human's life. And I could answer with the daily mundane task of, I don't know, doing the dishes or something. I mean, I know we have a dishwasher, but it's annoying having to put things in the dishwasher and then having to clean the things that don't go in the dishwasher and having to unload the dishwasher. Like, there are all of those things. But you know what really... 